I love what I do. I love the creativity. I love taking something raw, like a bunch of rhubarb, and turning it into something incredible where people are like, oh my God, wow, you know, from you know a few basic ingredients. And it, it is really, it is really something magical to be able to do that in life and, and to feed people. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are many cuisines with an array of ingredients, techniques, traditions, and nuances, and many types of chefs, but few require the extreme precision and exacting measures of pastry. The art of pastry is as much about the result as it is the science behind it. But what makes great pastry? Tiffany Jones is the owner and head of pastry at Tiffany Etc. Tiffany, how are you? Good, thank you. Huck yourself. Good. It's good to get you on the show. How are things travelling at the moment? Um, yeah, not too bad. It's been a pretty relaxed year for me um, after we we lost the business last year um, after COVID. So I decided to take a bit more of a step back and really just focus on creative process and doing things that I enjoy. So I've been doing a lot of chocolate work this year, which is great. Um, and, you know, we're focusing a bit more on celebration cakes, big wedding cakes and the artistic side of it. Take us through that sort of process. You, you mentioned you lost the business last year. What sort of impact did that have on you? And um, has the time allowed you to think a bit differently? Yeah, I de- my, my mindset has definitely changed, but it has taken it's, – it's been a long healing process, um, I won't lie. It was pretty brutal. I've had um, a very long career, 30 years in the industry, so I was definitely no newbie to sort of opening restaurants and things like that. Um, and I really thought that we were ready for it um, when we did sort of step in and sign that lease. So we ended up signing – um, we got the property end of 2019 and we signed early 2020 because I waited for a few months to make sure that, you know, the COVID wave had completely died off from the first um, lockdown. And we were pretty confident. We're like, you know, it seems good. Everything's gone back to normal. This was sort of February 2020. So I took the leap and we threw everything we had at it to sort of open our own space. And it was a sort of dessert wine bar. Um, we did coffee in the mornings and pastries all day. And then at night, we did some really awesome bar snacks and uh, had a great little wine list and some incredible plated desserts. So it really was a cross between a pastry shop and a restaurant, which is what I always wanted. Um, we were based in, in Rosebury and great local following, you know, even during the lockdown. we So we opened back to the opening. We opened June 2020. And uh, the opening collided with our wedding, <laughs> which was which was pretty hectic, as you can imagine. Um, the the build ran late. Most restaurant builds do. I don't know one that's ever been on time in my whole career. So we ended up opening about the seventh of June, and then we got locked down on the twenty second of June. So that was not even what two weeks um, trading as as a proper business. So it was. Um, a bit of an eye opener. It was a bit of a shock. We had, you know, we, we sort of opened with working capital on this great business plan and I pretty much just tore it up and threw it out the window when the lockdown happened and, and we just had to pivot. We we started doing, you know, cocktails in jars and takeaway cheese boards and charcuterie and cakes and, you know, dropping things on people's doorsteps and anything we could to try and 
keep staff on and and stay open and I, I literally poured everything I had into keeping all my full-time staff. I didn't stand any of my full-timers down. Um, so it was it was really interesting because it really showed me what I was made of. <laughs> um, I think a bit of insanity, a little bit of craziness definitely pushing through it all. So we got to the end of that lockdown and I think the restrictions lifted sort of October, November, and we were so busy, Huck, it was amazing. It was exactly like I wanted it to be. We were booked out every weekend. People couldn't get a table for six weeks, and, you know, things were really taking off. And at the time, the business was called The Pastry Project, which was my longstanding brand, and we just we just couldn't believe it. Me and my husband were gobsmacked. We're like, oh, you know, maybe we're going to recover, you know, from everything, all the money we've lost in the last six months. So we pushed on and we had you know, things were going great guns. We had bookings for December all the way up to, you know, New Year's Eve and then Omicron came upon us and that would have been about the second week of December and I literally watched $20,000 worth of bookings and work fall off a cliff overnight and I just said to my husband, I said, I don't know what we're going to do. And at the time we were battling with Services New South Wales because we were a new business, we didn't get any support. Um, from from the government at that stage. So we were sort of going back and forth with them trying to figure out if they could help us at all. Um, and then we got to the end of December and I made the very hard decision I had to stand down my head chef and then go back into the kitchen full time and, you know, take myself away from running the business, um, which was fine. Like, I, you know, I'm not afraid of hard work. So I sort of stepped in and, and we did that and my poor husband then stepped out and took a job um, to sort of help support the business and then come in at night being the barman. And, and this is a guy that was an electrician, Huck. So. <laughs> <laughs> he went from wow. being an electrician to, to, a, to a barman. He knows how to make gelato and he can whip up a cake. So he's pretty pretty multitasking these days. Um, so for him it was it was a, a really big shock because, you know, when we, we'd been together for three or four years before we got married and we were both a bit older, you know, we're in our, our late 40s. Um, and when he met me, he thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to marry a chef. This is amazing, you know. Um, and little did he know that that chef would be chained to her, her business 100 hours a week. So um, he it, it was a bit of a baptism of fire for our very early marriage. Um, and we, you know, it, it took its toll. We, we nearly went our separate ways after, you know, losing the business. It was really, really tough. So we, anyway, we struggled through Omicron. We, again, fought to get any assistance. We finally got some assistance in June last year. So no, everything's over. The pandemic's pretty much finished. And then finally the government gave us some wage assistance from early in the year. Um, but by that stage we'd just taken on far too much debt and it was taking its toll on me. And then the staff shortages kicked in as well. So from about February that year, we, we just struggled. We just couldn't, we couldn't have a full roster. Um, I, I don't know like what it was. I, I think everyone was in the same boat at the time. Like everyone was just screaming out for staff. And I took on a lot of juniors, which was fine because I've, I've trained a lot of chefs in my day. But, um, you know, obviously taking on those juniors takes me away from, you know, doing what else I've got to do. Um, but, you know, we, we managed for a while and then sort of May, June, it started to pick up again. But, yeah, we were just drowning and I, I had to make the call to, you know, become, become insolvent. And 
we did that and then the landlords, we tried to renegotiate the lease um, and they we didn't owe the landlords any money. It was really, when I say we owed people money, it was like the tax office and places like that. So we were we tried to make good with all of our suppliers. We I'm still paying some of them off, trying to do the right thing. Um, and we, you know, it was really just the business loan and the tax office and places like that that took the hit. Um, but we tried to renegotiate with the landlord because he put the property up for sale amongst all of this. So, and this is after we'd spent $100,000 on a fit-out and um, we then were going back and forth. Our lawyers were going back and forth. We didn't owe them a cent. We were paid up with our rent. Everything was up to date, you know, nothing no, nothing ominous there with the landlord. Um, but then he decided that when he found a buyer, the buyer wanted it vacant possession. So we then had to, we had 30 days to get out. How did it make you feel when you sort of had to make that call and let go of everything that you'd built? Um, yeah, I wanted to die. I, I, I was really, I was absolutely distraught. It really destroyed me. It not just destroyed me as, as a person, as a business person, as a chef, you know. It, it really knocks your confidence when you think after 30 years you can finally do this and and then you fail, you know, and it's, it's taken a lot of therapy, <laughs> um, you know, and a lot of support from, from my family and my husband's family and friends to get me through this. And, you know, I was so lucky, Huck, I got amazing calls of support from, you know, Colin Fastnich and James Metcalf and all these other people, you know, that, that have known me over the years that I've worked with, you know, saying, you know, Tiff, it's not the end, you just have to, you know, just get through this and you're going to be okay and, and it, it, it's taken a lot of convincing to be okay. So, um, you know, I decided end of December, I kept the business running from a temporary kitchen, which is really difficult. Um, and by the end of December, I just decided to stand down any staff that I had left and I completely closed the pastry project. I just ripped the Band-Aid off and I went, right, I'm done. I can't, I can't keep, I felt like I was flogging a dead horse. I mean, we were still very busy up to the end of the year and I filled all the orders that we had. You know, our Christmas range went went great. We, you know, mailed it all over Australia and, you know, the orders were coming in thick and fast for Christmas, which was fantastic. Um, but I was so burnt out. Like, I, I didn't really stop. I went from the shop, moving the kitchen to keep the business going and then come December, you know, th that was it. We closed it up. I packed the van up and we went down to Adelaide to see my parents. And uh, I, I literally, I, I think I slept for about four days. And my mum's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm just so exhausted. And then it took me three weeks of, you know, just hanging out with my parents to try and unwind and start unpacking everything. Um, and it's probably taken me a good six months. The first six months of this year, I've spent unpacking everything that happened and, you know, the decisions that I'd made and, you know, everything that we got through. And, you know, me and my husband are stronger than ever. Um, and like I said to him, our second anniversary was very recently, it was only last month. And I said, you know, if we've got through the last two years, we can get through anything. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned how much you've changed um, coming out of this. Uh, if, you, if you reflect back to that time and the incredible challenges that you faced, what what are some of the positives that you've pulled out of that as as you've moved forward? You know, I really I've always thought of myself as a pretty strong person, Huck, and I realise now that um, I am very very resilient and. <laughs> In, in the words of my big brother, I can't I can't say it on radio because he, he swears a bit, but he calls me a, a, a very very persistent no what is it, a tenacious MF he calls me, 
Um, and and this is a guy who's very high functioning as well. So he he just said, you know, your tenacity at, at you know, just keeping, trying to keep it going and even now trying to rebuild, he said, I take my hat off to you. He said, because most people would have laid down and given up. Um, so, you know, I have come to realise that I do, I am very tenacious and I do have a lot of, you know, interpersonal and mental strengths. Um, but it even broke me and I, I feel like I'm probably one of the stronger people that I know. Um, but it has also taught me to learn to let go and that the bricks and mortar, even though we did so much building ourselves and, you know, the painting and the tiling and all the things that we did, we put so much of our heart and soul into it. Um, you know, I, ha- I had to let it go and it wasn't meant to be. And it's it, until you let it go, nothing else opens up. You know, you've got to – I had to learn to process and unpack these things rather than just pushing them aside and going, I'll just keep working and I'll keep busy and I'll be okay. I actually had to stop. And it wasn't until I stopped that I realised, you know, the impact that it had on my health, my mental health, um, you know, and my family. You know, um, yeah. Well, I want to explore um, in greater detail sort of what you are doing this year and what the year has for you for the rest of the year. But your um, career has been pretty extraordinary. We might need three episodes to go through it it's all. It's pretty colourful. Take, take, <laughs> take, take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family growing up? So I, my parents were dairy farmers, Huck. So I grew up on, on dairy farms. And loved loved it, absolutely, you know, loved it. Although at the time I couldn't see it. As a kid I'd go to school and everyone else had, you know, Tim Tams and packets of chips and I had home-baked chocolate cake and homemade cookies and, you know, a bottle of milk and I'd just be like, oh, you know, I'd be trading people, you know, for my mum's baked goods. Um, and and at the time I sort of didn't realise. When I look back I realised, you know, just how lucky we were to have so much home-cooked food. Um, and, and very, you know, quite Australian, you know, it was, it was rural sort of Australia where we were dairy farming and my parents are both, um, so one side is sort of Welsh, so that English sort of style of cooking. Um, and actually, so my mum's side is, one side of my family is Ukrainian. Um, but that sort of didn't really, the Ukrainian food didn't really come through till I was sort of a late teenager. I didn't really start appreciating that until then. But, um yeah, so, you know, a lot of meat and fr- three veg and stuff like that. And the, my dad was actually a cook in the army back, back in the day. Yeah, so he cooked for, um, he cooked for the Queen at Duntroon um, during, during his training. Um, and then after, you know, he got out of the army after Vietnam and then you know, became a dairy farmer. I'm not sure why. And decided to have six kids and, you know, that sort of life. But it was, it really was a very interesting grounding, you know, learning about, you know, animals and, you know, eating off the land and, you know, everything from, you know, raiding mum's passion fruit vine, which then became a dessert later on, um, to, you know, just drinking copious amounts of milk. My mum used to always joke, like, you've got to, you're going to have to drink water one day because it's not always going to be milk on tap, you know. So litres and litres of milk a day. And, you know, just watching watching my parents, you know, cook and struggle. And we weren't, you know, we were very poor. Um, so nothing nothing sort of went to waste. And growing up in a family of six children as well, you know, if you didn't eat your food, somebody else did. Like, it was, I don't know how my mum did it. It must have been like feeding time at the zoo with all six of us. And, uh, you know, if, if one of us didn't like peas, well, one of us had swapped the peas for pumpkin or something. So, you know, there was always empty plates. You know, there was never, never food left over at the end of a meal. So, um, but, you know, it was an amazing grounding when I look back. And it does make me appreciate, you know, producers and growing and, you know, it's something in my 
future we've, with me and my husband have got this five-year plan of eventually buying a property down south, uh, back down to South Australia and uh, making a, a producing property, whether it's an orchard and getting into the dried fruit or a vineyard. I'm actually toying with the idea of a vineyard and to have that Airbnb and grow things and, you know, just just really get back to the land um, as, as we get a bit older. That's But that's a later, that's a much later chapter. Um, <laughs> well, that sounds ex- extraordinary. Yeah. When, when did you first sort of get an inkling that, you know, chefing was for you and where did it start? Oh, I don't know. So, I mean, there's a lot of kind of food aha moments when I was younger. One of them is mushrooms. I can't cook a mushroom without thinking of my dad because we used well, we used to harvest them, you know, they, they, they were all over the farm and mostly the big field mushrooms, you know, because of all the cow manure. Um, so we'd trek out and we'd pick some massive mushrooms and I must have been about seven or eight years old and I remember getting back to the kitchen and Dad goes, right, I'm going to teach you how to cook a mushroom. I was like, okay, great. So we got the pan, the big black pan out and, you know, we made sure we had some butter there, salt, pepper, and I think we had parsley, which was a bit exotic for us because my parents weren't big users of herbs. Um, so, and then we had good old white bread toast <laughs> just to make it all romantic. Um, you know, so, and my, we, we chopped them up and my dad was saying to me, you know, put the mushrooms in the pan and, and don't move them. And I was like, oh, okay. He goes, you don't want to hear them squealing you know how they squeak when you put them in the pan so I'm there with a, as a kid like listening to make sure they weren't squealing because I wasn't moving them too much and then you know we, we turned them all over and then we put some butter in and little did I know dad goes you've got to wait for the butter to bubble and years later as a chef I'd learned that this is foaming butter right this is you know the cornerstone of how you cook with butter when when you're caramelizing things um and, you know, and, and we let the foaming butter go and we get, let them get a little bit of colour and then in goes the salt, pepper, parsley onto the toast and that was it. And I'll never forget it, you know, for as long as I live. It, it, that's my first memory and every time I eat a mushroom I'm taken back, you know, to that, that farm kitchen with my dad and, you know, that absolutely amazing moment where I was just like, wow, you can take something from the land and you can turn it into something awesome on a plate. And I think that's one of my earliest memories of sort of thinking, I, I could probably do this for a living but years later when I left home, um, I le- well, when I say years later, I left home when I was 16. Um, like a lot, of pe- a lot of people of our generation we were kind of itching to get out in the world and do our thing. And my parents had relocated back to Adelaide, but I'd been going to high school in Tamworth um, because dad had got, they got off the farm and dad had been working as a rep. So I moved back to Tamworth, much to my parents' disgust, in with a house full of my friends and my boyfriend at the time. And I took... I had to work because I, you know, my parents were poor. They they weren't going to support me at the time. So I saved up. I had two hundred dollars in my pocket and my suitcase, and that was it. I moved out of home, and uh, I moved back to Tamworth. And I took on three jobs, and one of them was working in the deli at Woolworths, which back then was probably a bit more exotic than what it is now. I think. Um, and I started working for this other lady in this little tiny place called Quick and Delicious and it was a tiny little delicatessen kind of sandwich shop and we did everything from scratch. Like we cooked our own chickens for the roast you know, roast rolls, we did legs of lamb, we did everything and we, we sliced it all up and, and this was back in, you know, this was 30 years ago, Huck. So it was a, you know, this lady was ahead of her time doing all these gourmet sandwiches and we used to do a bit of catering for officers and I remember once she let me do the platters and I was just like, oh, I must have been 16 and I was presenting this platter and I was laying everything out and I was designing it all in my little brain just going, wow, this is amazing. And the creative side of me really started to come out. 
and she looked at it. She's like, wow, you're really good at this. And I was like, oh, and I thought, oh, maybe I can sort of do this cooking thing. And anyway, fast forward a couple of years and I ended up, um, I split up with my boyfriend and I said to mum, I'm coming home, back to Adelaide. And she goes, okay, that's great. And she goes, what are you going to do? Because you can't move home, you need to get a job. And I was like, oh, okay. And my parents, lived, they lived about an hour out of Adelaide, so they were still living on a homestead at that stage, um, even though they were both sort of working professionally in other jobs. So we still sort of had a farm, but we were subleasing most of the farm and mum and dad lived on the homestead. So she's basically like, you can't come home. Like, I, I don't want to deal with you at home, so you need to get a job. So we put in for some TAFE courses and I applied to be, this is, you're going to laugh, it makes me laugh even to this day, an air hostess, wait, like a, a front of house hospitality management or a chef. So I put in for the three courses at TAFE and I got accepted into all three of them and I had to make the decision. And mum's like, what do you really love doing? And I'm like, well, I like cooking. She's like, well, there's your answer. So I went and I did, I did my pre-voc at TAFE, at Adelaide TAFE actually. And so the pre-voc was kind of like the first six months of your apprenticeship training. And then you go out and, and you apply for an apprenticeship and it takes a bit of time off your apprenticeship. So at the end of my six months when I went to go, I did some interesting industry placement actually with um, Tony Cathreptis, who was Lou Cathreptis' brother. So you would have heard of Lou over the years, um, had Mazez, which was a very famous restaurant in Adelaide. Um, and then oh, I think he's still over in the UAE now. Um, but very, very, I was very dear friends with Lou sort of back in the day um, and started working in a kitchen for his brother Tony, which was across the road from Mazez. So that was my first introduction to a professional kitchen. And come hell or high water, I was going to prove myself. And I think this was a good grounding growing up with four brothers and stepping into a male-dominated field. I was just like, well, I've got four brothers. If I can compete against them, I can compete against you guys. <laughs> so I was very, very determined to, to make, you know, make, it, make it into the industry and get my apprenticeship. And then when the, the roll call came up to apply for apprenticeships, I put myself forward and I actually did my trial for my apprenticeship at Ragoni's down in Adelaide. Um, at the time, Eugene Miali was the head chef at Ragoni's. So me and Eugene go way back. So Eugene's responsible for all of this chaos, huh? all of it. It's all Eugene. He started it all. I hope he hears this. Um, so Eugene was just so great to work with and he was really lovely in the kitchen. I did a, couple, I did a trial and then I went back and did a couple more days and then eventually they told me that I was the one that got the apprenticeship. And at the time, I don't know, 20, 30 kids must have applied um, and Australia was coming out of a recession. So to get an apprenticeship was a big deal. You know, to have a trade was, was a really, a really, really important thing back then if you weren't going to go to uni. So I was, I was stoked and I got this apprenticeship and then I got shipped off over to Grimaldi's, which was the sister restaurant to work under a very tough English head chef, which was interesting because it was a bit of a baptism of fire and uh, that, that grounding of having four brothers definitely definitely came to be one of my tools because I was in a very, very male-dominated kitchen there and um, I really had to prove my worth. And after two years I moved on, I went to a little Greek restaurant and then after that, oh, gosh, I can't even remember where was next. I did, do, oh, I did do a brief stint in Sydney, actually. I finished my apprenticeship. I remember the last day of TAFE and I walked out of TAFE and Luca Threptis had rung me. He goes, Tiff, Christine Manfield's going to call you. And at the time, Chrissy, Chrissy had just been awarded Best Restaurant in Australia for Paramount 
And um, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I'm like literally clutching my trade certificate because I'd just finished. And I thought, oh, this is it. I know everything. I'm ready to go to Sydney. And uh, so anyway, so Chris Chris rang me and I was, you know, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yep, no worries. And I, I organised to sort of move up and go and work at Paramount. And I think I lasted about three months and, oh, boy, was it a culture shock. Oh, my God. It was just such for a little girl from Adelaide who thought she knew how to cook, I knew nothing. Nothing, you know, and I spent three months in the kitchen and, you know, with some very, very extremely talented people and Chris herself, obviously, and Margie, and I just realised that I wasn't quite cut out for it yet. I wasn't ready for that sort of big step. So I ended up after three months I resigned and I... I, I mean, I, re, I do regret it because I would have kept doing great things with Chris if I had a stuck it out. But I just, I, I just wasn't mature enough, I don't think, to sort of be at that level. Um, and I ended up leaving there and I went, did a bit of travelling in Thailand. I was like, well, maybe I should quit cooking. Maybe I'm not good enough. You know, I had all those doubts as a young female chef and I was like, no, no, I think I'm going to do it. And I came back from Thailand after a bit of a holiday and my housemate was like, hey, we're going to go to brunch. And he took me up to Agostini's, which isn't there anymore, in Wallara. And Margie Agostini came over. She goes, oh, so I hear you want to quit cooking. And I was like, what? How do you know? So my friend was working there as a waiter at the time. And uh, he'd given her the brief of, you know, this young girl that wants to quit and you need to drag her out of this humdrum and make her realise she's, you know, she's a good young chef sort of thing. So Margie basically said, you can start next Saturday. And I was like, what do you mean? I didn't come here for a job. And she's like, well, you've got one, so you need to turn up next Saturday. So I turned up and I did another probably about nine months um, in Sydney um, at Agostini's and I absolutely loved it. Like Margie was, you know, as a a boss and as a host and as a, a, a business person, she was just such a warm, generous woman. And I ended up going back to work for Margie three times over. Um, so I ended up leaving Sydney because my partner at the time was in the army. So we got relocated to Darwin, which was a culinary eye-opener to say the least. <laughs> yeah, so th- that was that was a very interesting stint. I sort of flitted around and did a bit of temp work and then ended up back in Adelaide where I started working for Maggie the first time. You spent a little bit of time early on in your career in Adelaide after sort of earning your stripes, as you mentioned. What, yeah. Do you have any stories of what it was like working with Maggie in, uh, at Pheasant Farm? Oh, I, yeah, I loved it. Maggie is like people see her on TV. You know, she, she's a very generous, warm woman and she will give anyone all the knowledge of food that will listen. You know, she really does impart a deep understanding of produce in you as a young chef and also teaches you to think and question, which I think at the time there was a generation of sort of chefs that were told to shut up and do, not to taste and think. So Maggie was kind of pushing against the grain at the time where she was like, you know, put it in your mouth, chew it, think about it, tell me what you think honestly, like what what do you get, you know, and she was – always quite open back then to listening to the other chefs that worked with her, you know, having input into the menus because we were I was working at Charlix at the time as sous chef um, and I was working under a fellow John Gable. John's still down at Carrick Hill down in Adelaide as a chef um, and John had worked with Maggie for many years as well and, you know, I just learnt so much about the appreciation of produce, how to look after it, respect it, and, you know, that real sort of sense of cooking from scratch and how important it is. 
When, yeah. when did you first sort of make that move with your career into the pastry area? Um, so I think I'd been cooking for oh, probably 10 years or so and at the time I had left working for Maggie. I'd gone and done a little head chef stint in a very small pub in Adelaide and that was like my first taste of real power in the kitchen. I got to run a kitchen. Um, and... I then went on to open a very small wine bar. Oh, God, I can't think of the name. Jazz Bister or something it was called. Um, and it only lasted six months. The owners went under, so we all sort of got locked out. Um, but at the time when after we got locked out, I had been on the wait list for the pastry course at Regency, which is a very revered course. Like they only take 14 students every six months, so it's very hard to get into. And I was on the wait. I'd been on the wait list for about, probably about a year because when I had left working for Maggie and I was at the pub, I sort of realised that one of the biggest gaps in my training was that I didn't do, I didn't know much pastry. And as I, as a head chef, I was sort of like, well, you know, I can do this and I can cook lamb and fillet a fish and, you know, break down a pig and whatever, but I can't, my pastry skills are not very strong. So I always wanted to round out my skills if I was going to keep running restaurants. So I got accepted into the pastry course and... That was a six-month full-time course, which then took us up to took me up to certificate four, um, and then I think we had to do like two years sort of industry working in the industry as a pastry chef afterwards. Um, but as it happened, I was still working for Maggie the whole time. Like I went back to work for Maggie and for Saskia Barossa Farm Produce um, while I was studying. So I was doing things on the weekends with Maggie and that, and then I'd finished that course and I was doing some bits and pieces with Maggie and Sass and I was sort of like oh god what's next and my partner at the time was a chef as well and uh, these ads turned up in the Adelaide advertiser in the newspaper looking for chefs in London and I said to him you know we're just sitting at a cafe one day and I'm like oh we should apply for this like you just never know and it was for a new hotel opening um, little did I know at the time what an important step this was going to be in my career. And I said, we should apply. And he's like, oh, no, no, we won't even get a look in. I'm like, but we should try. So here's me and I go home and I do up these resumes and I, I email them off and um, and we, got, we get a response. So we ended up having a couple of phone interviews um, with the sous chef and the head chef over in London before the hotel had opened. And they're like, okay, great. My partner had a British passport. I applied for sponsorship. Um, well, the hotel applied for my sponsorship, so I thought. Um, and we were told to get on the plane and be there within 30 days. Okay, that's fine. So we pack our lives up and off we go. So here I am going, yep, sweet. My paperwork's going to be at the airport. And I get to the airport and I get to immigration and they're like, where's your, where's your visa? Where's your work permit? And I said, oh, the hotel said it was going to be here waiting for me. And there was someone from the hotel waiting to pick us up, um, but he had no paperwork. So immigration looked into it and they said, oh, they've only just submitted the application. It's going to be six weeks. And I was like, oh, God. So what happened um, they, the hotel said to my partner, look, look, if you stay here, we'll promote you and then tiff, if you come back, we'll promote you too. So I got deported <laughs> after all of that because I couldn't, for some reason, they just couldn't sort the paperwork out and they thought it was going to be better off sorted out from Sydney. So I get deported and I land back in Sydney and sleep on a friend's couch for three months and I go back to work for Margie. So Margie took me in immediately. She's like, yep, I've got lots of hours for you. I'll keep you busy. I'll help you with the paperwork. So, you know, three or four months later, I think it actually took about four months in the end, um, I'm, I'm, I'm finally my, got my sponsorship. I've got all the right paperwork and I get back on the plane to London. 
So it was, um, but I went back to a promotion and, you know, all these other things and it, it was, yeah, it was quite the eye-opener. But we ended up, so we were working at the Grove Hotel in Rickmansworth, um, which is a beautiful hotel. And at the time we just being young chefs from Australia, I don't think we quite realised the enormity of, of what we were doing being a part of the opening team. Um, and it was an incredible – we spent three years there and it was absolutely incredible and I've met friends, people that I'm still friends with today and, you know, chefs and, you know, front of house alike that have all gone back all over the world and whenever I sort of go overseas I try and catch up with different people. Um, but it really was an amazing grounding for our cooking skills for both of us. So from there, I'm just trying to think where were we, London? Oh, so right before I left for London, I had finished my, my pastry. So when I went over there, I was actually in the pastry section and I was running pastry and larder. And at the time, the, the restaurant had three rosettes and we were working under a Michelin-starred chef, Chris Harrod. So Chris was from the, sta- the Le Manoir stables, um, working for Roman Blanc. And it was funny because when we were headed back to Sydney after our three years, um, Chris said, you know, look these guys up, Justin North and Colin Fastnitch. He goes, I worked with these guys at Le Manoir. So here we are, we're clutching these phone numbers. Chris is like, I think this is still their numbers or whatever. Anyway, so we come back and then we ended up getting in touch with, um, with Justin and my partner went to work for Justin. And at the time, Darren Vaughan was – opening Sydney Tower, which went belly up pretty fast. So I ended up going to work for Darren um, very briefly and then I resigned quite quickly, realising it wasn't the right fit um, working with the Truffle Group at the time. And then as it happened, Justin passed my number on to Colin and Colin was looking for a sous chef because he'd just taken over the four in hand. So I turn up, I have a chat with Colin, and he's like, what have you been doing? I said, oh, this and this and this over in London. And, you know, he's like, okay, great, you know. And then we sort of left it there, and I was waiting for him to call me to say, yes, you've got the job, or when can you start? And then he was waiting for me to call him. So I nearly didn't get the job. Um, <laughs> so eventually I followed him up, and he goes, oh, I, I, was, I thought you would have called sooner. And I said, you know, I was waiting for you. Anyway, so he's like, oh, when can you start? So I started and uh, that was sort of the, the the beginning of the relationship with Colin and with the four in hand. So he, I started and I think five weeks later he got, got married. He went and got married to Jane. Um, so I was left in charge literally five weeks after opening, um, which, again, another baptism of fire, like no pressure. We're going, you know, we're trying to build our way up to our first hat and whatever. Um, and he leaves me alone to run the kitchen. So, and we, you know, we were fine. We survived. And then the first year at the four in hand, we didn't get the hat. And I remember there was a standoff for about, well, I want to say three or four days between me and Colin, where Colin just didn't speak to me. Like, what, what have you done wrong? What have you done when I wasn't here? You know, I, I could I could feel the, the penetrating gazes of, you know, what happened when I wasn't around to make us not get the hat. Anyway, the review came out and it, it came down to the, the service at the time um, and a particularly jumped-up waiter who I think had too many exciting nights before and at the time when the reviewers came in, he, he the service just wasn't wasn't where it should have been. Um, so yeah, a, a bit of a bit of a deep breath, and then Colin all of a sudden starts talking to me again when he realises it wasn't his sous chef that let him down. And then the following year we got the hat, and then then the pressure was on the year after, you know, to get the second hat. And so the the whole time I was there, I think 
he didn't get the second hat until after I'd left. I think Carla Jones was his sous chef when he got the second hat. Um, but those those three years were, again, amazing, like just learning that nose-to-tail cooking, dining, eating and just the appreciation of produce, again, really, really came through working for Colin. Um, and, you know, it, it was a tough kitchen and I ran it when he wasn't there with amazing confidence and, you know, I believe – he really did appreciate my time there. I've got his first hat up, actually. He signed it for me when I left. And uh, I remember a few years back he was looking, he was lining all his hats up or something. And I'm like, still got the first one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You, you, you spent some time uh, working with Justin North as well with in the pastry section and running pastry sections. Do you have any stories of what that was like? Um, again, Really interesting time in my career. So after I left Colin, I took six months off and I went around the world. I'd sold a property. So I thought this is the only chance I'm going to get to really travel and eat and spend all the money. Um, so I went all over the place and uh, landed back. And right before we left, so my partner at the time was working for Justin. And right before we left, Justin sort of said, oh, what are you going to do when you get back? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, do you want to come and work in the pastry? Because he knew that I'd been trained in pastry. He said, we need someone between pastry and larder. And I said, that's fine. I'll come and do that until I decide what I want to do. And when we came back, they had then sort of laid down the foundation for the opening of Etch, which used to be on the ground floor of the Intercontinental. And so Justin sort of proposed to me, look, you know, spend six months at Bacass in Clarence Street and then once Edge opens, you can move across there as head pastry chef. And I thought, oh, this would be amazing. So the time at Bacass was very interesting. Again, you know, some relationships have been formed there that are lifelong relationships with people that I worked with. Um, I, I got to work with the very lovely um, Jacqueline Kaludrovic and uh, me and Jackie formed a really good foundation you know for our friendship we still I still get texts from her from over in LA asking questions and throwing ideas back and forth about pastry um and you know that that sort of relationship with a lot of those boys too and some of them who were only apprentices then who are now running their own kitchens um like Anthony Skiff um and Paul oh, actually no Paul was at the four in hand sorry not the cast um but you know what watching Anthony he was a little apprentice then and the trouble he used to get into with Justin um, and now he's, you know, leaps and bounds, got three hats and doing his own thing. It's, it's really quite incredible to sort of look back and realise the relationships that were formed. You've done so many things since then from catering to sort of Lotus Dining Group and, and run your own businesses as well. But you, you also worked with Channel 7. Um, t- tell us about how that came about and what that was like. Um, so I did um, – I was the what they call home economist for Zumbo's Just Dessert Season 2, which aired on – it did air on Netflix and then I think it aired on Channel 7 later on. Um, so that came about – so Jackie's – cousin Kate Nichols. Kate works in television. She used to be a chef. Um, So she's a food producer and she works on a lot of these shows. And uh, they needed someone who had the technical experience in pastry uh, sort of work between Adriano and the producers. So Adriano and his chefs would put the recipes together and then they'd send them to me and then I would test them in a similar environment to what the contestants would be working in and then I'd have to kind of pare them down. So say a 20-page recipe had to get into a four-hour filming parameter without upsetting Adriano <laughs> but also keeping the producers happy. So it, it was a very it was a very interesting role. Um, hard work, TV in the back end is very – I mean, any TV is hard work um, – 
but really, really hard work. And it was, but it, but it was so much fun. It was really interesting watching all the contestants, you know, kind of learn and grow as they went through the show. Um, and to watch them all come out and find their own feet, you know, in, in the different parts of the industry as well has been really interesting. Um, it actually brings me to my, my next instalment of what I'm up to. I'm actually going to do the Great Australian Bake Off. Starts at the end of this month. So I'm going to be the technical chef um, to do same similar role to what I did um, on Zumbo. Um, and I'm very excited to work with all the guys, Darren Purchase, um, who I met when I was judging a, a pastry competition a couple of years back, um, and, you know, Rachel Koo, who was also the host on Zumbo, and then a lot of the food team I already know. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting interesting 10 weeks. Um, but that's for season seven. Yeah, season seven. So I, I briefly mentioned sort of Lotus Dining Group. Tell us a bit about that because it was such a big role over so many venues, but delving into the world of, of Asian restaurants, what was that like for you in regards to desserts and the skill set that you had? So Lo- Lotus was it, it was very interesting. It was an interesting time because, at, you know, a lot of Asian restaurants don't have trailblazing desserts. Um, and at the time when I went into Lotus, I got asked to come and actually start consulting. Um, Tara Sullivan was the GM at the time, and I'd known Tara from back in the Etch and Bacast days. And she kind of had this vision of having a more modern, really kind of cutting edge dining experience with, with high end, you know, Chinese cuisine. Um, and as you know, I mean, Lotus's dishes are all fairly high end as it is. Um, but what they were missing was really having that good end experience with dessert. And so I had come in to consult and then I went off to actually do the Gelato World Cup and then I came back and this is after we'd come third in Australia. So Lotus were really stoked. They're like, oh, well, we've got this champion person, you know, and I didn't really think about it at the time. Um, So I came in and there was nothing when I started. They didn't even have a pastry section. So Michael Michael Zhang, who's one, he's the owner of Lotus Dining, he he said, Tiff, we've got this spot over here in the middle of the restaurant. We're going to build it out and we're going to build a little pastry bar. And I went, amazing. So we did that, we designed it, we got it built, took, I don't know, four or five months. So I basically just worked off some temporary cabinets for the first few months while I was testing to get the recipes going. And that was at the galleries was the first kitchen. Um, And then, so at the time, I think they only had the galleries, they had Walsh Bay and we were in the midst of opening Barangaroo. Um, so we sort of started off with a couple of restaurants and initially the supply was galleries and then as I built up my team and the kitchen sort of got built to being a bit bigger, we started supplying dumpling bar um, with things like um, we did some branded, you know, ice creams and we did petty falls and stuff, things that were quick because they have a real theatre crowd over there. Um, and then for the galleries was really those beautiful high-end desserts, working with a lot of the Asian flavours, which I found quite refreshing actually, quite enjoyable because it gave me like this whole other playbook of different flavours to sort of work into that classic technique of, of pastry with that had a lot of French grounding. Um, so I really did do some interesting things there and I really, really loved it. Um, taking the, the moulded kind of fruit desserts were taking off at the time. When I was in Italy was when I seen it when I was competing and when I came back, I came up with the idea of doing the mandarin pick from the tree, which was, I think it was in sync for Chinese New Year that we ended up launching it. Um, and at the same time, Cedric Grillet, who's super, super famous pastry chef, had come out, had started doing fruit desserts as well. Um, 
so I don't know. I mean, nothing's really original idea, is it? It's all, and, and I we all get inspiration from somewhere. But whether we were doing it on opposite sides of the world at the same time, I don't know. Um, so we started with the Mandarin, and then later on, as as time went on, I sort of started thinking about, you know, my my early days of of working working with food, eating on the farm, and one of the things that I kept coming back to was the passion fruit. So my mum on the farm always had passion fruit vines for pavlovas. And I would spend the summer bored on school holidays eating my way through the passion fruit vine to the point where mum would come out and be like, how's there no passion fruits? And there'd just be a pile of skins on the ground because I'd been sitting there in the sun with a spoon just scooping out all the passion fruits, throwing the skins away, not telling mum what I was doing and always getting in trouble for eating all the passion fruits. So I then designed a dessert called the passion fruit pick from the vine and I made my own mould and I got some nice wrinkly passion fruits and uh, we... In, in the true style of trying to, you know, recycle and not waste anything, I did a glaze made from the passion fruit skins. So it had this deep purple colour um, and, you know, passion fruit ice cream in the middle, a little bit of passion fruit calling and some marshmallow. So it was a really quite a cracking dessert and it, it made, you know, the Herald and the Sydney Morning, well, yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age on the same day. So of what's hot right now. So I was pretty happy about that. And then when I seen the article, I sent it to mum, like, look, mum, I can make passion fruits now. I don't have to eat yours. So I'm pretty sure she's got that on the wall somewhere at home. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really exciting times. And then there was other things, other reiterations that came on. I did the bamboo as well, um, which was a real kind of flagship dessert for Lotus. Um, and then when I got to work with Valrona Chocolate, and because the company was so big and we were using such volume, you know, I really formed a good relationship with Valrona that I still have today. Um, and I get massive support from them from overseas and from here in Australia um, using their chocolate and they share sort of my uh, my little works all the time. Even now when I'm only doing sort of small things, um, they still give me massive support, So, which as a pastry chef is great. It's always nice to, to have a brand like that behind you. At the top of the show, you um, sort of detailed sort of the triumph that you've had over the extreme adversities of the last couple of years. Um, how much has it changed you, and what 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 do you love about what you what you do now? Um, it's definitely changed me in the sense that I I feel a bit more relaxed about things. I'm learning to kind of take a step back and really only take on what resonates with me I'm not taking on jobs just to earn I mean we all need to earn money don't get me wrong and we've all got rent to pay and me probably more so than a lot of people um but I'm I'm trying to sort of I guess sort through sort through the noise per se um and really just align myself with things that truly bring my creativity out that I can relax and enjoy doing again um and it's just given me the ability to slow down a bit, Huck. Like I've spent, I feel like I've spent 30 years on a hamster wheel, um, you know, running, 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 running. And this year's kind of, you know, I, I, I became quite unwell at the start. I had pneumonia for eight weeks. And if that's not your body's way of saying you need to stop and lay down, I don't know what is. Um, and it did, it made me stop and lay down and, you know, have a really, really big breather and a really good hard look at, you know, that, that balance that, you know, making sure you look after yourself so you can keep creating and you can keep putting beautiful things out in the world. Um, and, and looking back, like I said, it does, it has made me realize what a strong person I am mentally and also physically. I don't know how I pushed myself through it sometimes. Um, but when you really want something badly enough, you do. You, you just you try to push through it as much as you can. Um, and that resilience really, really came through for me. 
and that that's what's made me kind of I guess stop dust myself off and keep going and I and I really do I love what I do I love the creativity I love taking something raw like a bunch of rhubarb and turning it into something incredible where people are like oh my god wow you know from you know a few basic ingredients and it, it is really it is really something magical to be able to do that in life and and to feed people you know well, Tiffany, I know you've got so many more stories and um, you're an absolute inspiration and I can't wait to see what comes for the rest of the year. Um, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today. Please keep in touch. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. And we'll have to catch up again soon. Yep, no worries. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Hart. Take care. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>